My guest today was selected in 2020 as one of the top 50 SaaS sales leaders to watch by Sales Confidence in the UK. She is founder and CEO of RevSeed, a consulting firm helping startups transition from founder-led sales to scalable revenue growth engines. Prior to founding RevSeed, she worked for two of the fastest growing enterprise SaaS tech startups in history, MuleSoft and Databricks, where she had direct experience of building and scaling teams, systems, processes from seed stage through to IPO. She is a multilingual sales leader with experience of living, working and building multicultural teams in Europe, North America, South America, Middle East and Africa. Bridget Fox, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm curious to know where that came from, that travel bug were you, you know, conservative background, bohemian, just tell me a little bit about that, where you grew up, etc. Yeah, sure, so I think that comes directly from my family, my family are, um, uh, well, my dad's side of the family is kind of working class Yorkshire, have never left pretty much the Yorkshire village where, where the family's been for generations, but on my mum's side, uh, they're descended from travellers and they joke about their itchy feet, so there's many a family story about my grandparents bundling my mum and my aunties and uncles into the car and just taking them off onto you know a trip completely unplanned and I think just growing up we always had that sort of adventurous spirit in the family. When you say travellers do you mean travellers in the cultural sense or explorers? Uh, explorers, more explorers yeah. Yeah and so at what stage then did you start to break away from where you grew up and explore the world? Yeah, so I did it quite early. So I, I decided around 17, as I was doing my A-levels, that I didn't want to go straight to university. Um, I decided that instead I would go and live abroad somewhere, and I loved learning languages at school, so I decided to live in France. I was an aunt and nanny for four children um, for the best part of a year in the south of France. And just kind of learning the language, living in a different culture, gave me the taste for for doing more of that in different places. So I actually went on to study languages at university, and then from there kind of live abroad in South America. and and uh, eventually travel a lot for work. And that's, that work you did in South America, that was part of your college degree in Manchester, is that right? It was partly, but I went over to Chile for six months uh, as part of my degree. Uh, loved it so much and it was just so different to anything I'd experienced before that after graduating I went to Colombia for a year and I was a teacher um, teaching English to Colombian students in a university. Yeah, what was that like living in South America? I've never been there, I've always wanted to go and I'd imagine culturally it's very different to Ireland, UK. Do you know, it was, it was wonderful. Chile and Colombia are very different. And Colombia, what I loved about it were the people are so generous and so kind and so warm. So, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a northern town where people say hello to one another. They know each other, you know, they're friendly. They're, you know, constantly talking about the family members, you know, how are you and how are they doing? And uh, Colombia was like that, except these were people I'd never met before. So, you know, I'd be sat on a bus going about my business and someone would just turn around and say, Nina, why are you here in Colombia? Tell us, where's your family? Do you need a family here? You can come for dinner. They were just, you know, you'd be scared of that on a London tube if someone did that. But, um, you know, it was so wonderful as a, as a foreigner to be embraced. So I have nothing but fond memories of, of being there. Do you think they were like that with you because you were a foreigner or are they like that just amongst themselves as well? They're like that amongst themselves too. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a, particularly Colombia because of its history, you know, it was really just opening up from kind of a, a long, terrible time really. Um, so they were very intrigued as to why someone would choose to go to Colombia when it's perceived by the outside world as dangerous. But um, certainly amongst themselves, they were very much open door houses, you know, people wander in from the neighbourhood and have a chat and a coffee, you know, it was... It was wonderful, really friendly. Yeah, there's a, a friend of mine, a Sandler friend of mine and his wife, Dan Macias and Teresa. They've set up a business in Colombia. They say they love it there. So, And they've said to me, you should come out, you should come out. I, I think you I need to go. I should, I should. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn, you also spend a number of months working as a street charity collector. Yeah. Now, I have, they're funny, it's because we all have our experience of, of street charity collectors and you get good at doing the little dodge, but at the same time I have incredible respect, that must be one of the most difficult sales jobs on the planet. 
how do you do it? Oh, I tell you what, it's been a long time, so I try and remember, but I do tell people that that was my first introduction to sales and it turned me off. And yet here I am sort of nearly 10 years later working in sales. But I, I think it was, you know, they gave good training, but I think it was about purpose. So, you know, Shelter was a charity I particularly connected with. Um, it was, you know, at a time I was looking for a part-time job and I don't think I'd have done that role for any company or for any charity, but Shelter in particular in terms of homelessness on our own doorsteps was something that I really care passionately about. And I think that came through. I think ultimately, you know, my belief in the cause, I meant I could connect with people and talk to people as human beings about the problem rather than just being that person that chases people down the road. Mm -hmm. Just for, uh, you know, just, just, just for facts, you're actually not allowed to chase people or follow people. There's a number of steps you can do before you're illegal behind people. So if anyone ever chases you, know that. Yeah. if anyone ever chases you, tell them that you know that. Yeah. that no, I, I, sorry, it was it was on my it was on my on my side is that when you see them approach you, you you kind of either you get very good at being distracted. Yes. Exactly. And I'm sure you've come up against that and how you get people's attention. And that's something maybe we'll come back to because from a sales perspective, building rapport very quickly with people and grabbing their attention is a key skill and, and not enough people have it. And I think it's something that you, if you don't have in, in that job, you're not going to last very long. So, yes. uh, but you mentioned purpose and that's something I'd like to explore a little bit with you is that you, you did that because you had a sense of purpose around the cause. Mm -hmm. As you think then through your career from that point forward, where else did you find a connection with a purpose? I think I've been fortunate to have that in every company that I've worked for, right, at different levels and stages. So I would be lying if I said that my decision to move into software sales was completely intentional. I think like many people, I was looking for a role that would give me the opportunity to earn well and to grow and to learn. And, you know, maybe with the idea that in a couple of years, you know, I'd do something different. Um, but I really connected with my first company's culture and purpose, which was MuleSoft. Um simply because it drove so much value for customers, right? And I think that's what it comes down to is, you know, connectivity, when you talk about it in a sort of IT sense, you know, it can be really boring and really dull. You know, we used to describe integration as like the plumbing. You know, who's excited about plumbing? But think about the value of plumbing. I'm not going to go too far into this metaphor because we'll end up in bathrooms. But, you know, you think about the value of that to customers and what they can achieve and the value they can deliver to their customers. That was the bit that really got me excited. And I think there's no better way or no better introduction to understanding how much pain customers can be in and how much value they can potentially get from a solution than being on the front line in an SDR role, which was kind of the role that I did when I initially started at MuleSoft. So, you know, I really deeply connected with, with what their vision was and I loved how it evolved over the five and a bit years that I was there. Um, but driving value for customers, that was really the kind of key purpose that I had, you know, my field, field sales roles. Yeah, that's interesting because that sense of purpose rises above everything else and it can keep you going in the in the dark days because, again, SDR is a really, really difficult job. Yeah. I don't know what it is with companies. They, they make people go through the, the, the highest hurdles first in terms of testing their resilience. Uh, and, and that's one of those jobs because uh, you're constantly, constantly talking to strangers and that's... That's that's tough. It really is. Um, so, talking about that common uh, that that sense of purpose, um, where did the whole sense of startups come about in terms of scaling? Was it accidental? Like a lot of people fall into these things, I think, just by accident, or was there something else that drove you? Yeah. So I think I fell into MuleSoft by accident, and I continued to be. Um, surprised at just how unique that experience was when I both speak to others and when I work in different businesses or with different businesses. Um, but what I instantly loved about that type of environment was it didn't matter that I was an SDR. It didn't matter that I was the most junior salesperson ever. I could add value and I could create things and I could build things and I could make an impact. And you know, I remember in the first week of uh, MuleSoft, they, they sent us over for company kickoff. You know, I've been there a week. I had no idea about enterprise IT. You know, if you asked me what SAP was, I'd be like, I don't know, a three-letter acronym. No idea. But um, but that very same week, I was stood up presenting in front of the founder, Ross Mason, the CEO, Greg Schott. I did the level one pitch in front of the entire company, which at that point was, I don't know, maybe 100 people. Um 
and suddenly you're able to connect with these people that are experts and 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 understand how to grow and what the opportunities are to fix things within the business and and I just loved that because I'm I think I'm an actual problem solver. Sometimes I see too many problems that need fixing and, and the challenge is saying no, but that's what kind of really drove me, I guess, in the beginning was this opportunity to grow as an individual, as a professional and, and to learn so much. So for that reason, I made the decision to kind of go into a similar stage company um, in Databricks, employee number 10 in EMEA, as I had been in, in MuleSoft. Um, and then my next move was actually somewhere even smaller, you know, where I could really build things from from ground zero at HQ, just because those opportunities for growth and learning um, were absolutely there. And I think maybe just to add, so I ended up doing an MBA. I'm actually still doing an MBA part time. And um, the cohort of people that I'm doing uh, the MBA with is really mixed. Right, There are some people from startup environments, but there are many, many, many from big corporates. Um, and I, I listened to their experiences of big corporates and they were all desperate to get into sort of startup for the very reasons that I, you know, have, have stayed in startup, which is that opportunity for growth and that opportunity to really move with the times. Um, so that sort of validated my choice to stay in, in this area, I think. Does it spoil you, though, for working with a large organization? Can you possibly ever, after that experience, go work in a large Fortune 100 technology company? I'm not sure I have the answer to that question because I've never tried it, but um, I suppose I can speak anecdotally with you know, some of my peers and people that I've worked closely with at MuleSoft, which was obviously acquired by Salesforce. You know, They've gone on to be a part of this very large organization. You know, So they have found tremendous learning opportunities and actually um, seeing how the big, big boys um, do it now and, and the structure, but also some of the stability in that as well has been has been really great for them. Um, so I think it's possible, whether it's you know yeah. a bit with your passions and yeah. what you're doing. Is, is I, I think there are companies like Salesforce, and Salesforce are a good example because they've still retained an element of their startup DNA. Yeah. Um, where we won't mention, but there are other companies that maybe have been there 30 years and mm -hmm. came from an on-premise type organization, heavy on process and systems and timescales, but but. Salesforce have kept an element. I they're they're a big company. There's no question, and they bring all those advantages, which you can have a startup mentality. Exactly. In, yeah. in Salesforce, but there's I don't know how many of those there are, and 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 I'm always conscious that uh, again I know I'm going to take some heat from this, and I don't mean it literally, but I would say you really haven't you're you haven't been rounded in sales unless you've worked it for a startup because it exposes you to so much that you just don't get when you're in a pocket of a very, very large behemoth type organization. I remember seeing this, I worked in a startup before I did Sander and it was a real eye opener. And what you're talking about resonates is where there, there are no layers in the organization. There's no job that you're not responsible for in some way. Uh, if you put your hand up, you'll be given it. Yeah. And I remember then, as we started to scale, and I was the first full-time salesperson in this, there was about 30 people. But what struck me was, as they started hiring salespeople from bigger companies, I remember we hired these, these, these salespeople were coming in, you know, they had this aura about them that they were big deal people. And I remember going to this trade show in the south of France, it was three GSM, big, big GSM Congress. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was incredible to watch them. They stood there like Egypts, where you had all of these prospects passing by, and your job was, it was, you know, those skills you have as a, as a charity work uh, collector, you'd see them and you'd go up to them and you'd catch them at the coffee and you'd build a bit of rapport and you'd find out why they were there and you'd set up meetings with them. But yeah. these people were just sitting around waiting for everything to come to them because their whole experience, they'd been given everything. Absolutely. And I think that's what large companies rob you of. Yeah. And that's why I asked the question, could you ever actually go into that? And I don't know the answer to the question myself. I think it's sure to be contained if I was put in a container, shall we say. And I have experienced what you're talking about because inevitably as you grow as a business, um, you know, you want to start bringing on kind of more of those kind of like enterprise sales people that have you know done the big hitting deals 
but what we were really careful about particular at MuleSoft was about the cultural and DNA fit. And I, and I still stand by this today when I'm hiring or when I'm advising people on, on hiring for, for their startups is, is look for DNA, right? Look for the DNA and the cultural fit. I know it's an overused term. More than you look for years of tenure or, or kind of, you know, necessarily how many multi, multi-million dollar deals you've done if that's not where you're at as a business right now. Because that culture fit and that kind of ability or at least that willingness to say, I'm going to pick up whatever needs to be picked up to get this done to drive the business forward, you know, like that's what you need kind of in the earlier stages of, of growth. Um, and, and how do you do that? How do you figure out if there's a DNA fit? It's a good question. So I think it's about, it's absolutely about the hiring process. Um and it's about asking the right questions and about being data driven, but it's also about sharing with the candidate candidly um, what your culture is like and what your expectations are, you know, and not assuming that they will know that if you say we're hiring for an account executive, that that they know exactly what that means, right? Explain the role, explain your expectations, explain what people do um, in that role or what people do in other roles that are similar for example and, and how much extra they take on or you know how much remit they have um, and then look for concrete examples in that person's past where they have consistently yes overachieved but also taken on more responsibility or proactively seen a problem and fixed it um, we, we did a lot of work on this in um, in MuleSoft again Particularly for SDR hiring, because SDRs are really tricky to hire. They've got no sales track record. You know, these are people either straight out of university or they're people that have maybe done a couple of years in work, but in unrelated fields. You have to just look for consistent examples of where they have taken ownership over something, right, and driven a result from that. And I think that's what I mean when I say DNA. It's kind of there. It's a track record, just maybe not as obvious as a sales performance record. Mm. You've worked with a number of organizations going from startup to IPO, both as part of those organizations and then as an advisor. Mm -hmm. What are the kind of common mistakes you see people, avoidable mistakes that you see people make again and again in, in go, going on that journey? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it depends on the stage, right? So the, the stage of, of growth. So I think the first one is, um, let's talk about going from founder-led to, to sales engines, right? which is one that's near and dear to my heart at the moment. I think it's really hard because founders have this passion and this belief in their in their product, right? And in their company, which they absolutely must have. Um, but it's how do you translate that into kind of sales messaging that is going to be repeatable and scalable but also works at different levels of an organization because you know founders are going to be the ones that want to throw the demo in front of that prospect and say look how brilliant my technology is right and you absolutely need to use that passion and, and, and play with it in the sales cycle but when you're bringing on external people as, as excitable as they might be about the, the opportunity in front of them they're not going to have that kind of natural connection with the product or with the I don't know the you know the, the journey that that product and that company has been on they need really tangible kind of this is how this product drives value and this is who we're going to target and this is why you know they need the beginnings of a playbook and I think many founders underestimate just how much codification there is and how much structure needs to be created around that for salespeople to be successful so I think either hire an individual that can naturally create that structure or you work ahead of time before hiring, you know, salespeople and SDRs to make sure that structure is in place. And actually, that's what I'm doing a lot of at the moment is helping founders create the structure and then hiring in the people that can then pick that up and run with it. Um, yeah, it's a difficult one because the founders have the story. They're able to relate to here's here's what I was doing. Here's with the here was the epiphany. Yeah. Here's the problem I'm trying to solve, and they can bring an emotion and, and an enthusiasm to that. Yeah. Trans getting other people to buy into that so that it's authentic to them is 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 no mean feat. No. Um, and it's also just getting down all of that good stuff that is constantly running around a founder's mind, you know, into a place that can be accessed by other people. Because it's not just salespeople that will need this, it's also marketing, right? It's marketing functions, it's external parties if you're using, you know, marketing um, agencies, for example, you know, anything that needs to use your key sales messaging would it better be consistent right uh, which is not if it's coming straight from a founder's mouth each time i think how many founders in your experience hang on too long and what are the early warning signs um what are the early warning signs 
I think it comes down a lot to how much trust and autonomy they place in the people that are, you know, helping them make the transition, whether that's the salesperson or the consultant or, you know, whoever's supporting them in doing that. I think there has to be a real trust that is built to do that, right? Obviously, the founders need to understand that this is going to be a positive thing in the long term. But I think that the, the warning signs are when there, there isn't that trust and there isn't that real autonomy. It might be said, but is it practiced, right? And what I mean by that is, if someone is coming to you with very um, candid feedback, like let's say we're working towards product market fit and the, the opportunities or the deals are getting stuck at a very specific point and it's very clear that something needs to change you know, on the product side, right? Um, at that point, if the founder is very, very wedded to their technology rather than the, the data and the feedback that is coming from the field, it means they don't really have trust right, in the people that are kind of having the customer conversations. I think that is a warning sign. It's a warning sign that the, the founder is not going to let go right, and is not really trusting the salespeople to be, um, you know, I guess, kind of driving the value for the customers that they think that they should be. Mm. Um, there's another part of your question there, which was, I've forgotten. Which was yeah. about the early warning signs. How do you notice when it's time for them to let go? How do you know when it's time to let go? I'm, again, I'm not sure I have a clear and, and um, concise answer to that. I think it does depend on the customer. I think some customers want to let go faster because they naturally want to get into more of the evangelization or, or more of the strategy, and they, they, they're really bogged down in the day-to-day. -day. You know, founders are literally prospecting and you know following up with emails and following up with customers there comes a breaking point where their agendas just don't just don't cope with that anymore i think it's the founder's dilemma from what you're saying is that they, they, they need to let go when it's obvious that they can't let go and, and how do you sometimes there's a crowbar has to be inserted and that's often which which brings me on i guess to my next question is that when organizations are raising money in the initial stages there they'll go to angel investors mm -hmm. and then they get past that and they end up with vcs which really are the devil so they <laughs> necessary evil or useful ally how would you your your experience how would you uh, characterize the role vcs make in going from start up to IPO? I think it really wildly depends on the VC from what I've seen. And I think um, you know, a lot of a lot of VCs now are looking at this aspect of portfolio success and, and they're thinking, you know, more seriously about what value can we bring to the companies that we're investing in, you know, beyond just kind of getting status updates and reports. And so, you know, I wouldn't want to kind of talk in general terms about VC because I think the landscape is really different. But Again, I'm going to draw on an experience from, I guess, Mulesoft. So Ross Mason set up his own um, kind of family business called Big Ventures. And they're really thinking about how can we help founders to make these transitions from founder-led sales into, you know, Series A and then Series A and beyond. Um, and I think that's a different approach, right? Because that is where you're going to try to help your, <laughs> your, your portfolio companies to be successful rather than just waiting for them to, you know, either be successful or fail. Um, Sequoia, similar thing, I believe, out in the US, obviously a much more well-known example, um, investing heavily in that portfolio success side of, of the business. So I think they can be either. They can either be a drag um, on the business and, and, um, and very unhelpful, or they can be extremely good at sort of networking the founders in with the knowledge and expertise that they need at the different stages of growth that they're at. Yeah. I, my again, my experience working as with that startup I joined after working with Motorola, so that was that transition. Uh, I remember talking to one of the consultants who was involved with the startup of the company, and he had been asked to do uh, psychological profiling of the founders, and his his conclusion was, "Don't put these people together." And he was paid by the the VC, mm -hmm. but they still went ahead and did it. And I think all the VC did was just made sure they had additional ratchets in there to protect their own back if anything went wrong, which of course is exactly what happened. All the founders were exited at one stage and I don't know that they got anything out of it other than a lot of grief. So I think founders have to be very careful. And again, I know there are wonderful VCs out there who put a lot of store and a lot of effort into bringing huge value and, and, and as I said, being supportive and, and helping people uh, and, and leveraging their own money and networks to to do that and others then i think 
they're just throwing darts at the dartboard, really. But I think numbers game. Totally, and I but I think like many industries, VC is you know really barely changed. I mean, it's you know let's let's count it in the financial services, but um, it's ripe for disruption. It's ripe for being done differently. I think, and um, and there are VCs out there that are starting to see that and take a take the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about the MBA you're doing because I noticed it was in. Was it sustainable, not development? You tell me. But I know it caught my eye that it wasn't, it was a little bit different to what you were current, had been doing up to that point. Yeah, so I think this goes back to that meaning and purpose question. <clears throat> so on a personal level, I am just convinced that everybody needs to be thinking differently about business in the sense that it's not just about profit, it has to be about people and planet as well, so kind of the three Ps. And... I think that um, you know the MBA for me was a way of kind of making steps towards maybe getting more involved or, or having a better understanding of how you can build businesses that are consciously, yes, profitable, but also making a positive impact to people's lives and to the environment. So the MBA at Imperial, though it isn't a specialist sustainability MBA, it, it has a really strong current of that running through it, just uh, because Imperial, which is where I'm studying, has a climate change institute attached to it and is... Uh, very focused on the sciences and engineering kind of discipline so so yeah so that for me was uh, was sort of steps towards um fulfilling more of what i feel is my purpose which is is helping to grow businesses sustainably mm. now i see straight away three major hills and you may have seen more but just pops into my mind is first of all from a founder's perspective th- their their priorities are just surviving to the end of each month and then the next quarter and then the year and so the planet and people, are, are they're not even on their radar. Mm-hmm. A lot of the VCs out there have only got one eye on, or both eyes, I should say, on the exit and, and really don't care. Some do, but they're in a tiny minority. Mm-hmm. And then there is, there's, a, there's a, a group of people out there who, when you mention climate change, they'll point at the sky and say, but it was cold yesterday. <laughs> Oh, yes. As evidence that the planet isn't warming up. Uh, how do you tackle those issues? Oh, there's three big issues there. So I think the, the, the startup piece is an interesting one, you know, being focused on the month. I think there, in many regards, actually, being frugal is in the DNA of startups. And being frugal is often something that really helps with, with lowering waste, right? Whether that's physical waste and impact on the environment or whether that's, you know, financial waste and, and overspending. Um, but I also think that startups at the stage that they are typically, um, they have the ability to design differently. You know, they're not trying to redesign their organizations and their processes the way that big, you know, big companies are. They can really kind of design for low waste or low consumption from the beginning same thing with diversity and inclusion you know many of the diversity and inclusion issues that we talk about um they're very very complex and large organizations and startups you can you can kind of really start from ground zero so i think you can flip it on its head you know there are some benefits many benefits of being conscious of waste in, in all of its forms um but also the opportunities to build differently and also take advantages of that as you grow um are kind of there for startups and i think similar for vcs i think there's an interesting question for VCs right now about how to measure kind of the investment horizons for sustainable businesses because you are looking at just normally just profit or revenue or kind of exit. Um, but certainly there are some emerging conversations around how do we start to maybe measure differently and, and kind of consider that the horizons will be different for these kinds of businesses. So that's kind of an emerging theme that's, that's coming mm-hmm. through a lot at the Grantham Institute, for example, which is the climate change yeah. centre at Imperial. And I think the third piece, which is about looking up at the sky and saying it was cold yesterday, you know, I, I think we've turned the corner in the last two to three years actually about acceptance of the data. I think, you know, without reeling off all of the data, I think most people would would agree that, you know, we are seeing the impact of climate change already. You know, the communities I'm from in Yorkshire, very heavily flooded, you know, 100-year floods every year. These things people are starting to wake up to and, and see. Um, so I think... The opposing argument to that, if someone absolutely isn't going to be convinced, is just to say, well, actually, if we can do things in a more climate friendly way with lower impact and it has no negative impact on your life, why not do it? Right. So 
uh, that would be the argument I would use. But I think in the US it's been politicized and I think that's part of the problem. It's almost like a badge of identity. I saw a documentary where there was people living in this coastal region somewhere on the east coast, I believe. And their homes, the, the water level has been rising over the last few years consistently. And it's now, the, literally it's eating, the sea is eating the, into their own land and their homes. Yeah. And they're still in denial. They're still saying, no, this is nothing yeah. to do with the climate. This is just, you know, once in a hundred year cycle. Right. And uh, it is difficult when it's politicized. Uh, but I'm interested, have you any examples of companies who are doing this well? So good example. Do you know, there are many companies that I was surprised to learn were doing a lot more than I would have expected them to. So without naming some of the names, because I'm not sure it's appropriate, but they were there were some really large financial institutions that I thought they must be investing in big oil. And I think there's a huge um, discussion starting now around uh, investing, choosing where you invest your pension money, for example, right? Not investing in fossil fuels. And I think some of the big institutions actually have really built strong practices around where we can invest not just to minimise impact, but actually kind of almost get to, you know, mm. below zero carbon. Mm. I think I read somewhere that BP were doing that. So not that long ago, BP were cleaning up oil in the Gulf of Mexico. And now they're looking at investing in clean energy and completely mm. doing a 180. Still energy company, but... The, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two views on that. One is that it's, it's greenwashing. The second is that... Um, BP, Shell, Big Oil, they have to be part of the solution. They have to be part of the transition, right? They absolutely have to mm. be. And I think they are investing hugely in, in doing that. Um, I'm trying to think of the example. There was a really wonderful example that someone gave me in my course of, uh, oh, it was the, the horses, right? You know, people didn't all of a sudden stop making saddles, you know, as cars came in. There was still a transition period where people were, you know, using horses and people were providing mm. saddles for people's horses, even as they were kind of providing the leather for car seats. Mm. It's the same thing with, with energy. I think yeah. it's a transition, not an overnight switch. Yeah. I'm curious, though, you mentioned greenwashing, and I'm, I, you often hear these kind of terms, and they're often pejorative terms. Mm. And I wonder if they're sometimes helpful. Is it is it shaming organizations for doing the right thing, which is what we want them to do? And maybe they're not doing everything we want them to do, but they're clearly making a big change. And, and yeah, you're right. Maybe they've been forced into it. Yeah. But to some extent, we're all being forced into it. We all have either something incentive that is causing us to change or something that we're worried about that's causing us to change. Yeah. And are they any different? I... I think greenwashing is used more often when it feels like the efforts are a drop in the ocean given the size of the operations. And BP and Shell are a great example of that. And I don't have the exact figures, but I certainly know that comparatively to what they spend on oil exploration, you know, their investment in green energy is very, very low. And I think that would be okay if we thought we had a horizon of 200 years to fix the problem but actually now what the scientists are saying is that the horizon is, is shortening right and and there are many tipping points at which we could hit you know an even shorter horizon and so when you have that much economic power right and political power the question is are you doing enough fast enough right. not are you doing yeah. something so what i'm hearing is you're, you're questioning whether there's a level of sincerity in in their their motives or are they just doing it so they can put something in an annual report to say, look at us, aren't we doing great? But really, when you dig down, there's mm -hmm. not a lot has changed. That's fair. I mean, that's a fair comment. Um, and I think it's worth looking at in organizations and not and, and being maybe a little bit skeptical because the time scales require us to be a little bit skeptical because we don't have that time frame to yes. be totally trusting. They require us to be skeptical, but they also require us to invest in many, many options at once because not all of them will pay off. And so, you know, on the basis that it's a numbers game, finding the solutions, whether that's solar, whether that's, you know, investing in kind of wind farms, whatever it might be, we have to invest in many different ways of trying mm -hmm. to tackle the problem now. Yeah. It's no good trying a couple now and then trying a few later and then hitting up on yeah. disasters. Uh, come back to me, there's a couple of things I want to talk to you about in terms of sales leadership in startups. And again, I know you don't have a ton of experience in large Fortune 100 companies, but mm -hmm. how do you see it as different? What are the challenges in growing people in, in an environment which is changing constantly? Yeah, it's a great question. And it applies to 
myself as well. So how do I teach myself and grow and, and learn? Um, I think the big challenge is, is everything moves so quickly. But also as a leader, it can be um, really difficult to invest in people knowing that they will be in a different team in a year if you've done your job correctly. You know, there is this constant kind of influx, particularly in junior sales, of fantastic people who are really hitting their stride and you want to get them promoted and it's wonderful to see, but they leave a big gaping hole that you have to fill. So there is this constant um, education that you're giving people. There is a constant education that you're giving yourself to make sure that you are on top of latest trends, latest messaging, because these things literally change every six months in a startup or, or less, right? Um, and, it, and it means that as a, as a human being coming into that kind of role, you have to be naturally very curious and naturally kind of driven to go and learn these things yourself because it's very unlikely that you're going to have a full built-out sales enablement training program that's going to, you know, reskill you every six months. You know, you do company kickoff and you go and you see the pitch and then you, you take it home and you make it your own you know kind of put that into practice so so I think the challenges there are, are really about that investment that you have to make but it's also a positive in the sense of it fires this kind of passion for learning and I think I see that as a thread through through a lot of people that are in startup they love to learn new things. Mm. You mentioned sales enablement um, I often wonder when is the best time to develop that function because I could imagine in a startup they just get in the way because if you look at where sales enablement practitioners come from, they're coming a lot of, from big companies mm -hmm. and they're bringing that in and maybe they just don't understand it. And that, you know, my, my own view is that the, the environment itself that you're working within requires people to be adaptable, to be resilient. And I don't know that any and, and sales enablement just slows that down and gets in the way. That's my own thoughts. Tell me I'm wrong. I don't mind, but I'm just curious to know where you see that fitting in and and if not early at what stage yeah I don't, I don't think it's it definitely wasn't the first thing there was no sales enablement on the ground when I joined MuleSoft there wasn't Databricks though you know arguably it wasn't a function it was a person but if I think about the Databricks experience actually that that person had the DNA that was right for that company and that kind of um, stage of growth so they came from I think they came from Google, um, but they've been at Google for quite a long time. They've been at Box before that. You know, they've been in that kind of we're going into hyper growth phase. So they know not to get in salespeople's way. But I think what was great about that particular individual as well was that they were humble about what they didn't know. And they were humble about taking the feedback from the field and turning that into something that was consumable by the rest of the field right obviously not every single tidbit and every single conversation but if there were patterns across the world from sales people saying hey we need some collateral about this competitor that's come out of the woodwork or you know we need some business case kind of justification content or calculators because we're just hitting on the same questions over and over again they would pick that up and they would churn something out really quite quickly so I do think the more agile sales enablement functions exist you know, I don't think you need them early, early days, but when you get to a level of scale where you're getting the same requests to marketing over and over again, right, often sales enablement will start to, to kind of jump in. Yeah, and maybe it works as well if you take somebody who's grown with the same organization and mm -hmm. now it's a sidestep move for them into that function where they're supporting the sales team because they get it then. i just not convinced bringing somebody in from the outside because, again, they tend to be quite conservative and risk-adverse. And that's something you just can't be in a startup. So yeah. uh, it's, it's, it's get, again, it's probably what you said at the beginning is getting the right person rather than worrying about the function. Yeah, yeah, it's less about the years of experience and it's more about where have you come from, what DNA do you have, and do you understand the unique challenges we'll have at the stage of growth, I think. Yeah. And what, what challenges did you have to overcome personally in from when you started as an SDR growing into a sales leader and what were the, the, the if you like, what, some, a fly on the wall, what they would have observed to whisper in your ear, hey, you need to go out and do something about this. What, what were those sticking points, those moments of tension, I guess, as you grew? Um... I'm smiling because I'm thinking about what people might have said, you know, early doors when I was at MuleSoft. And, um, I think one of them was about, it was about impatience, which sounds odd. And impatience is, is, is different in a startup versus a big company, I think. But 
you know, I joined, I joined Mealsoft as an SDR and I immediately decided I wanted to be an account executive and I was going to be an account executive in a year. Watch me, you know, millennial, total millennial. Um, it didn't work out that way, but it, it worked out better because actually I took on responsibility for growing the SDR function. You know, I, I, I got leadership skills and I um, just had a completely different experience versus being kind of on the, on the front line. Now, I did go into a sales role and a direct field sales role eventually, but actually those two extra years in, in the SDR function, although it was not where I would have chosen to be, I was part of a core leadership team at an incredible company and um, would never take that experience back. But I was impatient, right? And I was I was pushing those tools to kind of get through them quicker. So I think um, for me personally, it was learning to accept that there are steps on the journey you don't anticipate, but that you can take a lot from those steps and learn things you didn't expect to. Um, I think the second thing for me personally is um, learning to create boundaries. And what I mean by that is I, I'm, I get very emotionally invested in my work. You know, I really care deeply both about the people in the company and that is an absolute asset sometimes, but it can also lead to frank, frankly being burnt out and, and having very little left to give. And I think, you know, it's very topical mental health, you know, it's in the, in the news a lot at the moment, but um I think there is a real pandemic, if I can use that word, of, of mental health issues and sales that we don't talk about. I think we we avoid talking about them because there is such a culture of grit and resilience and determination and, you know, almost being unbreakable. But actually, we're, we're human beings and we work in highly stressful environments that are very fast paced. And I think there's a lot of work to do around um, helping people understand that how they feel when they're on the edge of burnout or in a burnout situation is is to be understood and, and something we can empathize and, and kind of help people with. So I think learnings for me is creating boundaries with my time, creating boundaries with my my emotions and, and how much I invest um, would potentially save me some pain there, if I, if I can say that. Okay, so yeah. I'm going to ask a question. I do not know the answer. Forgive the question. Don't get upset with me. Okay. Okay, but I want to get to the heart of this because you're absolutely right. I've experienced it myself. Yeah. And and it wasn't due to working in a startup. So I, I have huge empathy for what burnout feels like and how it can leave you just without any motivation to, to do anything other than basic tasks. Uh, so I, I'm coming from a place of huge compassion on that. I'm, I'm, but I am deadly curious about where it comes from. Is it? Is it? And I kind of answered my own question a little bit there a moment ago, but is it a generational thing in terms of if you have a generation who comes straight out of college and up to that point, everything has been easy, relatively, broadly speaking. Everybody's journey is different, but broadly speaking. And then you come in, so is it that, that they haven't had to, maybe in the past where they had to go into national service or I don't know some other challenge in their own personal growth is it the environment because that SaaS hyper growth organization didn't exist 30 years ago it's mm -hmm. it's quite a recent phenomenon is it that is it societal expectations of what it is to be a knowledge worker and and those and I'm just curious to know where you feel and your experience is that if you were to change some or all of those areas where, where would you go to work it's an interesting question so i think there are there are some things that are obviously like they're specific specific to my experience which i'll talk about in a second but i think there are some some fundamental changes in the way that we see work you know versus say um the generation before us or you know my parents grandparents and that is just literally the advent of technology that enables us to be always on and it, and it sounds like a cliche but it, it really means that you are driven to check you know what's happening and um, whether that's the news in your personal life or whether that's on your email or your slack you're, you're driven and actually being drawn in by these devices that are built to hook you um with notifications to check on things that are happening at work and and I think that means that there is always this kind of like low level of stress and anxiety about what you're not doing, you know, and that, again, personal life and work, you know, fear of missing out, 
socially, but also work-wise, if you're not the first person to respond or you don't get on top of a customer problem as soon as possible, like what's going to happen? You can't say that you didn't see it, right? There's an interesting anecdote, which is that, you know, in France, they either did or have tried really hard to turn email servers off for big companies after 6 p.m. because they want people to create that separation, have that rest. And I feel like people are not able to sufficiently rest, right? Um, I actually don't think that that comes from bosses or that comes top, tops down. I think that's just the way that in which we engage with our with our technology platforms and, and work nowadays. So there's definitely that. Um, there's a piece around high growth technology companies too about what they ask in terms of that emotional investment. You know, they're very culture driven. They talk about being part of this family and this kind of like really big, amazing thing that you do become invested in. And so you do unleash kind of this internal intrinsic motivation I think to to deliver and, and perform but I think other industries will have a similar you know piece to them um when you're moving very fast it's probably just accelerated and intensified a little bit my personal experience though is about um it's about boundaries but it's also about who I felt I had to be and this persona that I had to create to fit into the world of sales and, and I am going to go into something that's maybe topical for International Women's Day which is there is a culture in sales, I think, and especially in tech of be the best, be strong, do not show weakness, demonstrate that you are confident you're going to you're going to crush it. You know, th these things which um, I'm not naturally like that. I'm actually kind of pessimistic and kind of critical. Like I'm going to look ahead in my forecasting and I'm going to see all the things I could potentially bump into in a in a in a deal that are going to, you know, come out and bite me if I don't get ahead of them, right? But I think that's a good thing, like being anxious and, and, and kind of almost cynical about what might go wrong helps you to address the problems before you get there. Now, when I express those kinds of sentiments, either when talking about deals or when talking about business processes internally, I'd often be told that I sounded critical, pessimistic, um, you know, there's just a difference in communication style, I think, there as a woman. And I do think it's not a, it's not gender specific. It's not encoded in our gender, but it's the way in which we're socialized. Right. We are socialized differently. Man strong woman, you know, fix the problems. And, and, and I think that doesn't work well when you're like the only woman in the room. And, and I've been the only woman in the room many occasions in the startup. So so for me, I felt like I had to pretend to be something I wasn't in many scenarios. I felt like I had to. Um, kind of changed the way in which I spoke and the way in which I thought and the way in which I worked um alongside all of the kind of long hours and the travel and the you know being constantly connected to technology that just was a kind of explosive cocktail for me so I think there's a piece about diversity and I think there's mm -hmm. a piece about macro trends it's a long way of answering a question but hopefully it's no, I, I, I'm really curious about that so I think what we're saying is there's a number of factors I think the least thing is about generational. I want to roll that back, actually, because I just don't think it's true. No, I came from a fairly soft generation as well, coming out of college, uh, our school going into college, and everything was done for you. And we, we, in fact, it was, when I say softer, we didn't have those external pressures because when you came home from school, you went out and played with your friends, and you didn't think about what even happened the next day. So I, 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 I roll that back. I, I'm curious what you said, though, about from a gender perspective, because, and I'm curious to know what it's like, in that what popped into my head when you were talking about being the only woman in the room. I have been in rooms where, for example, if I'm in Germany and there's 20 people in the room, there's 19 Germans and there's me. And they're friendly, they're very open, so I don't feel in any, I don't feel threatened in any way, but I also feel that I'm one of, I, I don't feel part of them. I yeah. feel even if they're not speaking, even if they're speaking in English, I know culturally they're say, they're they're sharing uh, in jokes. They are speaking from a cultural perspective sometimes in a way that I don't always understand. And again, they're perfectly accepting, but I'm not one of them. And I'm just wondering, is that what it feels like? It can absolutely feel like that, and I think it's um. I think I think technology companies, certainly the ones I've worked for and experienced, have a really beautiful dream of like we're equal. You know, we are equal, we treat everyone the same. And I've had really brilliant, you know, kind of male mentors that are very much like, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, like I just want you to be successful and I'll invest in you. And that's wonderful. But I think as I've become more mature in 
in the profession and in the industry, I realised that believing everyone's equal is is part of the problem. <laughs> believing that everyone starts from the same base or communicates in the same way or mm. has the same experiences or feels as comfortable in a certain environment as others might and apply that to women or diversity in any kind of sense. That's half the issue. And actually what we need to get better at is having a real conversation around what are those fundamental issues and how do they change how we might react or respond to a certain scenario? Um, rather than just saying, we'll treat everyone the same, meritocracy, we assume we start from the same same place. But it does absolutely feel like that sometimes when you're the only person in the room, it's like I need to change who I am to fit in here rather than be perceived as someone who's maybe... Um, yeah, not and, 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 well, that's interesting because it's our differences that make us, first of all, people are drawn to what's different, not what's the same. Yeah. We pay attention to what's different. But also those differences, it's in those differences there are key strengths. They're not always strengths, but that's true of whichever gender you look at. There are certain, if, if, you, if you take generalities, right, then the specifics, but generalities, is their strengths and weaknesses, in broadly speaking, in, in in genders. And instead of trying to say we're all the same, there's equality, but sometimes I think that gets misconstrued as we're all the same. Yeah. And it's not. I think we should be celebrating the differences and recognizing them. That. Um, and and there's a ton of research. There's a there's a ton of kind of data that suggests that diverse teams perform better you know I, I made a real point of trying to to build diverse teams uh, and there's downside of that which is that when people communicate differently when they're not the same they are um they're slightly slower right so there's only stages of startup it, it's it's you know sometimes it takes a little longer to get on the same page about things it's why you often get very homogenous kind of founding teams they kind of all come from a really similar background because they, they speak the same language but as you grow you know in terms of performance and sales performance you want diversity you want a mixture of ideas and conversations to be happening about how you can improve and the data was there to prove that mm. but i also think i think uh, maybe hijacked is the wrong word when we talk about diversity, it often can be automatically thought of as either gender or race. Yeah. And I think there's far more other types of diversity in there as well, experiences. Uh, do I want somebody coming into the organization from a different industry? They're going to bring a different perspective. It may or may not fit, but at least we should be talking about it. Or just personality types. We can't all be bottom line, goal-oriented individuals. Some people need to be detailed. Some people need to be outgoing. And so you have that kind of diversity in there as well. A diversity of thought. So again, you know, creatives in a team versus operationally focused doers. And I think the, the, the right diverse mix for the business, I think, is what's important yeah. rather than specific quotas. I, I think that's missing the point. I think that should be maybe a, a measure that we're doing it right rather than what you need to do. I, maybe I'm not explaining it right, but I, I think okay. that we, we're in danger by managing things by numbers rather than by uh, true diversity. I, I agree. There was some interesting research um, actually from a book called The Invisible Women, if you've read that, which is about uh, no, women in data in particular and, and how that impacts decisions around everything from town planning to transportation routes to um, the way that mm, kind of medical conditions are diagnosed but you know one of the pieces of research she did was actually how do quotas change performance and quotas actually improve performance because you have to force in a certain level of diversity now that's a it's a topic or maybe I want to kind of swim into because it's, um, it's yeah, yeah. complicated but I would say that um something needs to be done about the way that we get diversity into teams, right? And it starts obviously in the hiring process, but things are changing. People are having these conversations about how do we get cognitive diversity, ethnic diversity, kind of gender diversity into teams. There's a ton more work to be done. It is suggested by recent studies though, that actually forcing some of that um, is the way to kind of create the momentum for the first first steps. Yeah, yeah. I, you could force it or, certainly for me what works far better and I've seen some organizations do it really really well they just come up and and and, and they come up with the data and said look diverse organizations do better and yeah. here's why 
And I think that's a lot easier to buy into. It depends on your personality type. If you're a rebellious type and you don't like being told what to do, you're probably going to react negatively to being told what to do versus sell me on the idea. If it's not something I've thought about, if, I'm, if I've got a blind spot over here, help me see what's in the blind spot yeah. and, and help me grow. That's it. I, I think that's a better approach for me. That, that would be my way of doing things. Yeah, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. You've hit upon a point which I, I talk about a lot, which is most people accept that diversity in teams is great for performance, you know, at performance. Um, the big problem is educating leaders as to their own bias, right? People don't know what their own biases are, otherwise they would fix them themselves. And I think there's some great work being done actually in the HR tech space, you know, which is the space I've just spent a bit of time in, um, around how do you uh, change your job descriptions, for example, to look at, you know, kind of the bias that might be in language when you're kind of talking about the traits you're looking for. Mm. How do you um, kind of almost do blind CVs and kind of first kind of screenings with people so that interview biases. But there's also bias training and kind of helping leaders to understand where their biases sit. I mean, I have bias, absolutely. Am I going to try to as a women? Of course I am, right? Am I going to try to... You know, to kind of redress the, the imbalance that I've seen totally. Mm. But I think it's kind of as leaders, it's it's being self-aware enough to know what those are and then think about how to address them in our own teams and context. Yeah, no, makes sense. Makes sense. I, I'm 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 always interested though how they do that because I'm not so sure the the the, the term of you know de jour is the unconscious bias. Well, if it's unconscious, how do you know about it? And your question is for that now. <laughs> Say that again. There are there are technologies. There are some interesting tech companies now that um do kind of bias screening almost um right. through a very sort of series of exercises that that help people to kind of uncover that. Yeah, I'd imagine it's a minefield. Absolutely. Yeah. Probably beyond the time we have here to discuss it. That's for sure. But it's an interesting area, and as I said, we all have it, and I think sometimes it's only when we become self-aware about it. Well, I say self-aware, it's, 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 we usually need some sort of prompt, or we discover something, or we hear something, or we read something, um, and, 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 and that can kind of help us see that, oh yeah, you know, I, I never realized that I automatically, when I see this, I associate it with that, and I'd never looked at it that way, um, and, and that can be definitely can be helpful. But um, yeah, I, I, you mentioned, I, I know you're doing the MBA in, in, and, and the, the sustain, sustainable environment was very key to your own, um, your own sense of purpose. I'm, I'm guessing that when you were four or five years of age, that wasn't something that was pretty much on your mind. That as you, there was some point where you had an awakening, something happened, whether that was a sit up in bed moment or was a kind of evolved over months or whatever where where that became a driving factor what happened what was it that that brought you to that place um so uh, it actually goes back to south america so i'm from a family that have always been conscious of the environment but very much at a stage when if you were conscious of the environment you were kind of a bit of a hippie you know right. you where, you know Greenpeace loving yeah. hippie um so I, you know I was always conscious of it but I think when when I really realized just how fragile um kind of the balance is of the environment in which we live on and, and how easy it would be for the earth to kind of just get rid of us really um if it needed to was when I was out in Chile I actually arrived 10 days before um a major earthquake it was an 8.8 .8 earthquake um, it was one of the biggest they'd had in maybe 10 years and you know we're from Britain we never experienced these extremes of, of nature you know we, we, we are from a really temperate isle it's you know grey most of the time but there's never anything really dangerous you know that's going to take us out and um, Chile changed that you know the ground beneath your feet literally shakes for minutes and um, you know it wasn't just one it was followed by several after aftershocks and i think i think it changed my perspective you know it changed my confidence that actually all of this was here it was just here for us you know nature was here the way that we lived was was fine you know it, because fundamentally everything kind of the foundations moved um so that was the first thing and then i went down to patagonia which is right down in the south on on 
um, a trip over the Easter holidays. And Patagonia is kind of characterized by these huge glaciers, absolutely wonderful, you know, these ice fields that at the smallest are kind of the size of Buenos Aires as a city, which is just incredible to see. And so immersive, you know, it's like ice is cracking and breaking, and there's all this noise that comes with it, and these pieces of ice are coming off the glacier that are the size of skyscrapers, and you're just sat in a boat looking up at this thing. And um and you know, the the, the guide was kind of telling us that because of climate change that this glacier this huge mass would not be there probably in five years time ten years time and um and that's kind of when I realized you know we're, we're so insulated from it where we live where you go to the extremes of the world and, and unfortunately to a lot of the places where many of the world's poorest live and they're really feeling it already and and that was what changed my perspective and it took me many years to get into or get to a place where I wanted to actively do something about that but I think that was the turning point in my perspective mm. Bridget, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious we're up against it on time. Uh, uh, final quick question for you. If there was ever a book written about your life, what, what would you like the title to be? She did the best. I think, that, I think that's a great place to leave it. <laughs> Bridget Fox, I want to thank you so much for being my guest, my guest today. It's been fascinating talking to you and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, Thanks again. Thanks so much. Likewise, Paul.